The book of Revelation is probably the most exciting and at the same time the most misunderstood book in all of Scripture. The Come Follow Me study for 2023 is about the New Testament, and the book of Revelation is the crowning book of the New Testament. I'm Sam Bracken, your host, and our teacher is Dr. Breck England, who has studied the book of Revelation through the lens of the temple. God made certain promises if we enter into a covenant with him. In this podcast, we explore the first four promises the Lord makes to us in the initiatory ordinances. Breck, in the last podcast, we talked about the initiatory ordinances that appear in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. But we didn't get into the promises that are made in the temple to those who receive these ordinances. In the temple, we are washed, anointed, clothed, and given a new name. And with each of these tokens, we receive a promise from the Lord. In Revelation 2 and 3, Christ promises that he will give us certain gifts if we're faithful to the tokens. Now, there is a sequence to these promises. I want you to picture in your mind the seven cities that Jesus addresses in the book of Revelation. He visits each city in order, and they form a circle on the map. Mm. It's like he's going around uh, a circular uh, route through right. these seven cities. Wow. Remember, the course of the Lord is one the eternal, eternal round, round. Okay, and he's right. going around a circle. So picture Jesus going around this circle, making a promise to each of the seven branches of the church. Okay? Okay. There are seven promises. Seven cities, right? So there are seven promises. But we will only have time in this podcast to go over four of them, and we'll cover the other three in the next episode. Sounds good. The Lord gives the first promise to the, to the branch of the church at Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a large city right on the coast of Asia Minor. Um, it's in ruins today, but uh, it's an amazing sight, this ruined ancient city. And the promise that the Lord makes to the branch at Ephesus is this. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Wow. That's uh, verse 7 of chapter 2. What does he mean by the phrase, to him that overcometh? What do you think it means? Recently I was reading in Second Nephi chapter 2 that talks about um, there must needs be opposition in all things, you know, to, for us to overcome those oppositions. And it connects it to um, the reason for the opposition is because it, it helps us um, be better and overcome obstacles and become more like God. And we have to choose, you know, we're given free will. And so to me, overcometh means to remain faithful no matter what the, the experience is, no matter what the environment is, no matter what, just to right. keep the faith, keep working, keep getting better, keep improving. Yeah. And uh, whatever the, the world lays at your feet, whatever it hits you with, you just keep, you just be steady. You just keep going, keep getting better. So these, these promises are made, all, all these promises are made to the people who overcome, right? right? Now, like you say, to overcome, right, whatever adversity or resistance right. or opposition, as you say, the Lord throws in our path or, or, or the devil throws in our path or, or nature throws in our path. Right, right. What, um, you're, you folks out there cannot see Sam, <laughs> but Sam is a giant of a man. He is... Uh, 
the product of like 40 years of bodybuilding. <laughs> and um, Sam, tell us about what it means to grow muscular strength. What do you have to do? When it comes to getting stronger, um, the harder, th here's the principle, the harder things get, the better you get, the stronger you get, right? So um, if you're if you're in the game, right? If right, you're resisting, yeah. if you're resisting, if so, you're actually, and not just, not just watching, right. but actually pushing, right, right, pulling, so, stretching. Yeah, it's yeah. A, yeah, pull and push, right? So when you're weight training, when you lift weights, the heavier you go, the harder it is. The more it tears down your muscles, and in that torn down sort of humble state. You have recovery, rest and recovery. And when you rest and recover, those muscles which has been torn down, they 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 build up. And then the next time you lift, they're stronger. So you actually to get stronger is a very painful process. And but the byproduct is great strength. And uh, I have loved to lift weights my whole life. And you and love, is this because you love pain? Yeah. Or is this because you love <laughs> I, I, I don't being know. strong. I, I I love being strong. Now I'm I'm not near this. I'm not near as strong as I was when I was a young, you know, collegiate athlete and very groovy and you know I was super super strong. But as I age, that strength is really really important. Mm -hmm. And I force myself to go to the gym. Like this morning, I was at the gym for two hours, and I lifted weights and it was painful. But I feel much better now and. And I'm keeping my muscle mass. So when you keep your muscle mass, you can keep moving and you can keep getting better. So that that doesn't exist without opposition, without weight, pushing weight, more weight, build strength. Let's it's, relate that to, to the promises perfect. that the Lord gives here. To him that overcometh. We've just been saying that to, over, to, to gain strength, one must overcome resistance. Right, right. right. So... Uh, spiritual strength comes from, finish my sentence. Spiritual strength comes from opposition. So if you don't face opposition, you do not grow strong. And if you don't grow strong enough to be Father in Heaven, like, to be like Father in Heaven, then you can't be like Him, right? That's true. Because Father in Heaven's spiritual power is infinite. Right. right? And we gain spiritual strength and power as we face opposition, as we, quote, overcome all things. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's because of my background, but um, this idea of getting, um, it's not a free gift. This idea that, that growth, spiritual growth, physical growth, any kind of learning, it's not a free gift. You have to do your part, which is to work and yeah. to work through the resistance, work through the pain, work yeah. through the opposition. Yeah. People ask themselves, why does the Lord do this to me? Why? Why, why am I forced into this situation where I either overcome or I, I die, give up? But obviously, we can't grow unless we face resistance. Right, correct. And he knows that. Yeah. And it's a law. So when we face resistance, it's not that we're being punished. It's that we are being given opportunity to grow. Okay. Amen. It's man. coming to earth is like going to the gym, like you say, and being in the mortal situation. We face tribulation. We do. Is the scriptural term. Tribulation literally means um, resistance. It means something that is holding you back, and unless you push against it, you will not gain 
the physical strength or the spiritual strength rather to be like our father yeah. in heaven now jesus knows how much we can take he does and so do you know what a spotter is i do know what a spotter what is, is. It? what is a spotter a spotter is someone who watches the weight as you're struggling with it and if you collapse the spotter picks up the weight so it doesn't crush your body. <laughs> right. So in a sense, Jesus is like a spotter. Oh, I love that analogy. He's, he's the redeemer in the sense that he knows just how much you can take. Right. And there will come a point where he will literally grab the weight out of your hands yeah. because you can't do anymore. You've pushed yourself to the limit, and he will <clears throat> grab the weight from you because... He knows how much you can take, and he knows that you have reached your limit. And having reached your limit, you've attained the greatest strength you can under those conditions. Spiritually, he will grab the weight from you. You know, it's interesting you say this because in the advancement of weight training these days, they have this thing called train to failure. It's actually a literal training impact where you... You lift until you can't lift anymore, until, right. until you reach failure. The reason that works so well is because it maximizes the muscle growth and development, right. training to failure. Right. Perfect analogy. Yeah, perfect man. analogy because a lot of people um, keep asking, Heavenly Father, why me? Yeah. Why, am, why, why are you laying such burdens on me? And what they need, what we all need to understand is that the burdens that are laid upon us in this mortal life which the scriptural term is tribulation. When that's laid upon us, it is a blessing. It's for our benefit. That uh, we cannot grow to be like him any other way. As Eve says, is there no other way? There is no other way. The promises are to those who overcome, not because of their own strength, but because they are pushing and pushing as hard as they can and the Savior takes the weight at a certain point from you. He's the sort of like your spiritual sputter, right? Yeah. He'll grab the weight at the point where you, you uh, as you say, tr you train to failure. He won't let you fail. Well, he will grab it at that point, and you become at the point where you will gain your greatest strength. Yes. Right? Yeah, I love this. And that's what it means to have faith in his atonement. That's right. one of the meanings of atonement is that he will become one with you in carrying the weight. Yeah. Okay, But he can't carry the weight for you. No. This is something that people don't, that a lot of people don't understand. He is not going to carry the weight for you because you need to carry it to strengthen yourself. Right, right. I've always, um, instead of, uh, I learned early in my life, instead of saying, why me? And I had a lot of reasons to say, why me? was to say, what am I to do? Like, that was far more productive. Because mm -hmm. why me sets up that I'm, I'm, I don't have choice, that I'm a victim. What am I to do? Exercises agency, it gives me direction, it gives me something I can put effort toward. And it's so much different, that the outcome is so much different when you say, okay, what happened to me was bad, how I'm gonna respond is gonna be good, this is what I need to do. Right, right. So different. And that is what is meant by uh, when the Lord says, to him that overcometh, I will give this promise. Let's go into the promises. Right. The promise he gives to Ephesus is this. <clears throat> it's the first promise, and it goes back to creation. One of the things that you'll see in these promises is that there is a kind of sequence to them that is the same sequence we see in the endowment. Okay. The first promise is the promise that was made to the, in the Garden of Eden um, at creation. 
the Lord planted the tree of life. To him that overcometh will I give the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now this tree of life symbolizes uh, uh, the love of God, as we hear in uh, 1 Nephi chapter 11. Nephi says the fruit of the tree of life is the love of God. So the first promise that he gives is that he will always love you. The fruit also, the tree also symbolizes eternal life, as uh, we read in 1 Nephi. Now, in the temple of Solomon, the tree of life was there, Mm -hmm. or rather a symbol of it. Yeah, the menorah. The menorah. The menorah is a stylized form of an almond tree. Oh, okay. Now, why an almond tree? Because in Palestine, the almond tree is the first fruit tree of the year to flower in oh. the spring. Wow, oh, okay. It's the first fruit, okay? The first blossoms. It's a precursor of the return of life, resurrection, wow. and so forth. So when he promises you the tree of life, what is he promising you? He's promising that you'll be resurrected first. Yes. The morning of the first resurrection, right? right? Exactly, okay? The promise is fulfilled when, like uh, the family of Lehi, the family of God partakes of the fruit of the tree of life. Okay, So, the, interestingly enough, there was an early Jewish writer about the 3rd century B.C. His name was Ben Sirach. And he wrote um, an interesting little meditation on the tree of life. To him, the tree of life represented the heavenly mother. I want to read a quotation to you here from Ben Sirach. She, the Heavenly Mother, stood in the heavenly assembly. She was present at the creation. She was enthroned on a high pillar of cloud. She was allotted Israel as her inheritance. She served God Most High in the temple of Zion. Her symbol was a huge, fragrant tree from which the rivers of Eden flowed. She is a tree of life to all that lay hold upon her, and happy is everyone that retaineth her. That is a quotation from Ben Sirach, third wow. century BC. The tree represents, of course, Eve, mm-hmm. right? The mother of all living, as we have said before in our podcast. Mm-hmm. She represents the tree represents all mothers, mm-hmm. really. Now, when Nephi asked to know the interpretation of the tree, uh, the the angel that he asked, he asked this question to this angel. The angel shows him a vision of, quote, a virgin most beautiful and fair above all other virgins, the mother of the Son of God. So we know the tree stands for the mother, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. As the mother of the one who said, quote, I am the life, Mary is another Eve, Mm-hmm. a mother of all living. The promise of the tree of life is fruitfulness. It is the promise of the eternal family. It is the promise of the exaltation and continuation of the lives, as Doctrine and Covenants 132 says. So that's the first promise that God gives um, in connection with the temple ordinances of initiation. He's, he promises the tree of life, which is 
eternal life. Uh, exaltation and continuation of the lives. Yeah, the first promise to the faithful is eternal life and eternal fruitfulness or the eternal family. And the tree of life is a symbol of that. Exactly. But every token has two sides to it. A good side and a bad side. Okay. Okay. That's fascinating. The tree is also a warning to the people of Ephesus. Now, the symbol or logo of the city of Ephesus was a palm tree. So this was particularly uh, appropriate to the people of Ephesus when the Lord says, I will give you the tree of life. The palm tree was the symbol of the city of Ephesus, where there was a famous tree shrine of Artemis, the, uh, the Greek version of Astarte, who is the consort of a false god. In the Bible, um, he's called Baal or Baal. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to meet Astarte again <laughs> later in the... Uh, in the book of Revelation, she is an she's a, uh, astronomical character as well. She's the woman of Babylon, the mother of abominations, uh, who wears the signs of the zodiac around her neck. Um, she's an arrogant symbol of pretension to rule the cosmos. Intriguingly, the Ephesians, who invented coinage, did you know they invented coins? I didn't know that. Around yeah. 650 BC. Mm-hmm. They actually invented minted money coins. Mm. And who did they engrave on their coins? Astarte, mm. Artemis, They're the goddess of the hunt, the goddess of the moon, who was their, uh, their particular goddess. The point is this. The Ephesians may choose between the fruit of the tree of life or the counterfeit of it. Okay. Mm. Um, between the mother of all living or the mother of abominations. If they eat the bad fruit, their candlestick will be removed. That is, they will lose the light. They lose the menorah, the true tree of life, the light of Christ, the light of God, the love of God. So with each token, there's a promise to the saints who keep their covenants and also a kind of curse if they don't exactly the lord gives the second promise now to the saints at smyrna that was another big city in asia minor quote he that overcometh will not be hurt of the second death i will give thee a crown of life well with the fall death enters the world right beyond physical death adam and eve are also threatened with spiritual death called the second death Alma says the second death is uh, a spiritual death. He, he shall die as to things pertaining unto righteousness. It's, that's the, the spiritual death. What it means is eternal separation from God and from our families. Interestingly, death was a big business in Smyrna. Wow. <laughs> okay. You mean like Louisiana? Uh, yeah. Like I don't know about that. but uh, <laughs> Death was big business in Smyrna. Their chief export was myrrh, right. which is a natural resin that's used uh, for burial, right? Mm-hmm. The um, rituals of weeping and burial. And in Smyrna, which is a pagan city, they would have a uh, festival of Niobe, who was a, uh, a goddess whose 14 children were killed by jealous gods. People came from all over the empire to celebrate this festival 
and of course to spend money. Mm-hmm. So Smyrna, Smyrna was a city of death. Okay, wow. all right. Wow. Now Jesus says this that the faithful saints who live in Smyrna, the branch of the church there, they will be tried for ten days. Quote unquote. You will be tried for ten days. Now people wonder, well, what does he mean by that? Tried for ten days. Well, anciently, the number ten represented human perfection. It was a consecrated number, number 10. Um, now, I think the 10 days symbolize the mortal life, the great tribulation we all go through, mm-hmm. which we must overcome. Right, right? right. So you're going to be tried for 10 days. In other words, you're going, to be, you're going to be going through a tribulation in this mortal life until you reach the point where you don't need to be tried anymore. Right. And those who endure well the 10 days of tribulation which is an echo of the festival of Niobe, okay, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, they will receive a, quote, crown of life. Mm. Do you see why this promise was particularly appropriate for Smyrna? Yeah. Because it was the city of death. They will receive a crown Crown of of life. life, Yeah. Now, in in Greco-Roman times, the crown, the Greek word was Stephanos. Interestingly, we get the name Stephen from... The word, their word for crown. Mm-hmm. The Stephanos was a token of priesthood and festive joy. Mm. The high priest of Israel wore a crown engraved with the motto, Holiness to the Lord, the symbol of his royal priesthood. Right? Mm-hmm. Now the crown, therefore, is right an important symbol, a symbol of uh, priest and king, or priestess, queen. So it's also a bridal token, they called it the wreath of life. Uh, in the New Testament book of James, it says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life. Okay, the crown of life. Now, a New Testament scholar named Reuben Zimmerman has written that the, quote, wreath of life means the bridal wreath. You know how brides wear mm-hmm. a wreath, a, a crown, yep. which in both Jewish and Greek wedding rituals is a, a traditional symbol for both bride and groom. And it can be understood as a symbol of marriage or of premarital chastity. It's a symbol of overcoming and becoming a queen and a king, a priest and a priestess. Okay. So the crown of life was a symbol of marriage. That's right. Also, the ancients could see the crown of life up in the sky. Mm. Astronomers today call it corona borealis, Mm. the northern crown. Uh, In the highest quarter of heaven, it's a circular constellation. looks like a crown of jewels. It was thought to hold the paradise of God. Some seasons of the year, you can see it. Somebody points it out to you, okay, somebody who knows where it is. Because it is so remote in the north and because it's so splendid, okay, the northern crown represented the highest aspirations of the ancients. They -hmm. they thought of it as that's where I want to be, okay. It's the highest aspirations of the children of God. Now, the Lord promised Adam and Eve that they would be resurrected and crowned king and queen, priest and priestess. If they were faithful, he promises the same thing to us as we stand in the place of Adam and Eve in the temple, right? Mm-hmm. 
the promises apply to. To you, Adam, and you, Eve. The Lord gives the third promise to the saints at Pergamos. It's another city. Uh, if you start at Ephesus, you go to Smyrna, then you go to Pergamos, and, all right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's how they go. It's like going from New York to Pittsburgh to Chicago. I mean, they're in a line, okay? Mm-hmm. Okay. So this promise to Pergamos is, quote, to him that overcometh, again, right, mm-hmm. will I give to eat of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. That's in verse 17 of chapter 2. We talked about that in our last po- podcast, we last did. couple of yes. podcasts. Uh-huh. Now we're talking about the promise associated with Very the, cool. yeah. the uh, new name. Heavenly Father allows Satan, the false god of this world, to lure Adam and Eve into a bleak existence far from the presence of God. Now John calls this quote in, in, in uh, chapter 3, verse 10, he calls this world, quote, the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. That's why we're here. Of course, right. Okay. Now in Jewish legends, Satan shows up dressed in black silk, okay, as a counterfeit pantocrator, which in Greek meant all-powerful, almighty, which he calls himself, right? He says, I am, I am the God of this world. I am pantocrator. I am, I am the almighty God. And pantocrator, interestingly enough, was also a, a Greek nickname for the chief pagan god Zeus, whose temple was huge at Pergamos. So again, it's very appropriate to the people of Pergamos, right? right, right. Say, say, John calls it Satan's throne. It's the temple of Satan, okay, mm-hmm. at Pergamos. Now, as Adam and Eve enter the test of mortality, they will need the tokens received in Eden to protect themselves against the, the so-called god of this world, this counterfeit god who is Satan. They'll need those tokens to protect themselves against him. And the tokens are the hidden manna, the white stone, and the new name. Okay. Now, what do these things represent? Yeah. What is the meaning of, of hidden manna? Well, like the Israelites in the wilderness, right, in mm-hmm. Exodus, God sent manna down to mm-hmm. feed them, right? Well, like the Israelites, Adam and Eve also received manna, but it's a spiritual manna. According to Jewish legends, manna was a divine food that was ground in heaven by the angels and fell to earth from the stars, as Jewish legends put it. The hidden manna is a symbol, right, Mm -hmm. of the bread of God, which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world, according to John. And who is that? It is the Savior. Mm -hmm. The hidden manna is the Savior, the sustainer of Adam and Eve, he nourishes and guides them along. Okay, mm-hmm. so that is the meaning of hidden manna. Okay. Now, when Adam and Eve left the garden, legend says that God gave them uh, zohar. Now, that's a Hebrew word that means a brilliant, luminous gemstone uh, that holds the light of heaven. It was their their uh, urim and thummim for receiving guidance from heaven, and they passed it on to Enoch and to Noah and to Abraham, who used it to study the motions of the stars. That's in 
Jewish legends, but it's also in the book of Abraham that Joseph Smith gave us. The new name marked Adam and Eve as royalty. In the new name, says uh, one scholar, an important uh, Old Testament scholar named Richard Herbert Wilkinson, says, in the new name, we see a parallel with the common practice of giving new names to monarchs during the coronation and accession ceremonies. So a king was always given a new name. Mm -hmm. So was a queen. Wow, I didn't know that. For example, at Jerusalem, um, King Azariah becomes King Uzziah. The, the, the name also changed in meaning. Okay? Mm -hmm. and, um, and in Rome, okay, the first emperor of Rome was a man named Gaius Octavius. But when he became emperor, he was given a new name. Caesar Augustus. Mm. Okay. Now kings in ancient world usually received a throne name. Oh wow. So that was also a mark of royalty to receive a new name. Okay. When the Egyptian pharaoh was crowned, they gave him a, an amulet. It was a stone engraved with his new name, his throne name. And also his birth name. Mm -hmm. They were both there. Uh, the names were engraved inside a circle that symbolized the eternal round of heaven. Today, uh, they call this uh, stone a cartouche. It's a term you may have heard that refers to the name of the pharaoh that was carved into the temple walls and mm -hmm. palaces and so forth. It was the pharaoh's nameplate. Uh, it provided him protection from evil. Uh, for Adam and Eve, the cartouche, or the stone with the new name on it, signified their royal status and ensured a safe passage on the covenant path. That's the symbol of the stone with the new name. So the stone with the new name is a sign of becoming a king and a queen. It's a royal symbol, but it's also a protection. Right. That's the third <clears throat> promise, okay, in a nutshell. The Lord gives the fourth promise to the saints at Thyatira, the next city on the circle, right. okay? Like I said, if you started on a circle from Ephesus, you'd go to Smyrna, and then you'd go to Pergamos, and then you circle around, you go to Thyatira. Uh -huh. And in Thyatira, he gives this promise. Quote, He that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Wow. Okay, that's the fourth promise. Now, Joseph Smith changed this verse quite a bit. He changed the promise. Hmm, okay. In the Joseph Smith translation, I'll read it to you, and you can okay. compare it to the King James Version. Okay. Here's Joseph's version. To him who overcometh and keepeth my commandments unto the end, will I give power over, quote, many kingdoms, and he shall rule them with the word of God, and they shall be in his hands as the vessels of clay, in the hands of a potter, and he shall govern them by faith with equity and justice, even as I received of my father, and I will give him the morning star. Isn't that beautiful? That is beautiful. So in Joseph Smith's version, the iron rod is the word of God instead of a rod to hit people with. Yes, exactly. That's how Joseph changed this verse. He translated it differently. Right. Yes, you can see that Joseph Smith's translation is completely different from the King James Version. Yeah. And this is important. The King James Version promises power, 
to rule over the nations with a rod of iron. But God doesn't govern that way. He doesn't. He governs the nations with his word. Right. And he shall govern them by faith, with equity and justice, as Joseph Smith says. In other words, Christ will rule the world with love and without compulsory means, not with compulsion and punishment and condemnation, slapping people with an iron rod. Yeah. Okay. You know, that's a different picture of God. We, we have a different... We have a different picture of who God is than anybody else in the world. Absolutely we do. Yeah, I love it. Uh, And Joseph says, you're not going to end up being a mighty king smashing people right and left. You're going to be a father who governs with equity and justice and faith and love. That's how Joseph changed that person. It's very important to remember. Yeah, it's beautiful. Adam and Eve also have to learn to govern their family, right? Right. With kindness, with faith, with equity and justice. And once Adam and Eve can demonstrate that kind of, of charity and service and faith and patience, well, they enter a new stage, a stage of mortality where they enjoy more of the presence of the Son of God. And according to Doctrine and Covenants 76-77, this stage is called the the terrestrial kingdom, the terrestrial glory, uh, or the glory of the moon, First um, Corinthians 15. They receive more responsibility and more light to guide their path. They now have to meet a higher standard of purity. And so the light gets brighter okay. in the terrestrial. Now, for the other side of the coin, there is in the branch of the church at Thyatira a Jezebel, mm. okay, uh, she's a type of a Jezebel, a woman, quote, which calleth herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. So there's a wicked woman among the, the uh, saints at Thyatira. Mm-hmm. In the Old Testament, Jezebel was uh, King Ahab's queen. She was a pagan. She was um, a priestess of Astarte. Right. Oh, the mother okay. of abominations, okay. who was the consort of their god. Of Jezebel's god was Baal, or mm. Baal, depending on how you pronounce it. Jezebel has always been connected with idolatry and sexual promiscuity. The Jezebel of Thyatira was like that. She probably partied with the powerful men in town, I mm-hmm. think. So... The Lord asks Thyatira to hold fast to the law of chastity. Do you see how these covenants are being made? Yeah, yeah. every step of the way. Now we're we're into the law of chastity. Right, right. And he warns that those who commit adultery with her will be cast into great tribulation. Mm -hmm. You're really in trouble, okay? Right. If you break that covenant. This Jezebel that's in um, Thyatira, she's a foreshadowing symbol of the mother of abominations that we're going to meet in chapter 17. She stands for the, quote, deep things of Satan, okay? It's illustrated in the original Jezebel's conspiracy to slaughter and possess the lands of of various people, Um, Naboth in particular, in the Book of Kings. Even today, we refer to an evil woman as a Jezebel. Yes, it's less common today. Um, you, You do hear it. Also... The name Ahab, her husband, is also used to refer to an evil man. 
Jezebel and Ahab are the antitypes of Adam and Eve. Oh, wow, okay? that's cool, yeah. Um, Jezebel and Ahab ruled as queen and king with an iron rod, right? They beat people to pieces, uh, repressing the people and murdering to get gain, which they did. But by contrast, Adam and Eve will rule as queen and king over their posterity, but they will rule in faith and equity and justice with the iron rod that is the word of God. Right, which is okay. much different. Very different. See how they're absolute contrasts. Yeah, yeah. The Lord also promises to give the faithful saints of Thyatira the morning star. What does that mean? Christ is the morning star. His presence is promised to the overcomers, right? Right. Of Thyatira and everywhere. He is the, quote, star of Jacob, unquote, spoken of by uh, the prophet Balaam in the book of Numbers. Peter calls Jesus Christ the day star who rises in the hearts of the saints. Some versions of the Bible translate Revelation chapter 2, 28 this way. The one who conquers will be appointed as the morning star. By this reading, um, faithful saints become morning stars themselves. Ah, very cool. Perhaps, one scholar says that perhaps this was an ancient title for a son of God, like the sons of God who sang for joy at the creation, who were also called morning stars. Mm. Uh, and that's in Job chapter 38, verse 7. By emulating Christ, we too become morning stars to our posterity. Now the first four promises, this will sum up here, the first four promises made to the faithful in the temple are the tree of life, representing eternal life. Mm -hmm. The second promise is a crown of life and godhood. The third promise is the stone with the new name, signifying royalty. And the fourth promise is power over many kingdoms, but power exercised by faith equity, and justice. You'll be a ruler, but you'll have to be a certain kind of ruler. Yeah, righteous ruler. Those are four great promises. But you said there were seven promises in all. So what about the other three promises? We'll talk about those in the next episode. Sounds good. <laughs>